Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Yasmin. And this is Descendants Talks. And we're talking to the writer, poet and creative educator, Zena Edwards, plus poet, DJ and workshop facilitator, Nathaniel Cole. Welcome to the series two of the podcast. You both took part in the recent Speak Pondem here at the National Maritime Museum. Can you tell us something about them, why you got involved and what it means to you? Um, I was in, invited. Um, I always has, it's always a pleasant surprise when, as a, as a free, not freelance, I don't like to say freelance, a self-employed artist, because nothing is free. <laughs> <laughs> but as a self-employed artist, it's always nice to have some, an invitation fall in your inbox that is interesting and is in alignment with what it is that you want to do or how you feel you want your art to represent yourself and also represent your principles. And I do believe that in the narrative of the Windrush generation, that it, it, uh, the Windrush generation and the fact that it's 75 years since the whole, um, the whole concept of the Windrush generation arriving in the UK, it should be celebrated. Uh, and I'm very happy to be a poet that, um, is part of that celebration. So I was very happy to receive the invitation. Yeah, very much, very much the same for me. Um, again, being self-employed, um, yeah, and having that invite and speaking to the producer of the programme and learning more about what the project was, it, it seemed like a no-brainer. It made sense to, to be involved. And yeah, I think just thinking of what, yeah, what that day reminded me of was just the idea of legacy and that things continue. Um, I think sometimes we can get hung up on that one moment, but actually the fact that there's multi-generations there on the day and, you know, there's young people that are born into this world every day that are the descendants of somebody. Um, so I think it was a nice, one nice way to honour honor what's happened, but also like look to the future too. How does your personal identity and heritage influence you as an artist? Just what Nathaniel was saying about telling a generational story. Um, I have to think about how I am the descendant of a migrant settler family. I think we forget that. I mean, there has been a presence of people from the African continent, from the Caribbean, black people, basically. Africans have had a presence in the UK for centuries, for a very long time, and not just in the, in the role of enslavement or being human trafficked, but have also been here as craftsmen, merchants, business people, musicians. We've been here in, in different presences. And um, I think we forget that the Windrush generation was about migrancy. It was economic migrancy. It was people who had dreams and aspirations. It was people who believed in the whole idea of the mother country, loyal to the UK um, for whatever reasons. And they came because they wanted to help fulfill dreams, etc., etc. Um, I'll say etc., thinking that people know what we're talking about, <laughs> right? Um, but um, it is a, a migrant settler experience which means that I don't, I didn't have, my, my personal story is that I didn't have a connection to the Caribbean until much later on in life. Uh, and so I only knew the UK as an island, if we're talking about island life, you know, Caribbean islands, this is the island I know. 
So I look at it as there's a British experience that I have as a child of an of an of African descent with a Caribbean heritage, which um, and that heritage encapsulates the whole idea of you know like as I said, chattel enslavement, the trafficking of Africans, and and being able to build a culture out of that, and then to come to the UK, um, and um, settle here. So that's my heritage, and I put bring all of that into my waking moment, every waking moment, I'm very much aware of that. Not that I walk around saying, Zena, you're a black woman. I don't do that because I'm also a human being first. Um, then I'm a woman, then I'm a black woman, you know, so et cetera, et cetera. So, so when I write my work, I write it from a perspective of like, I'm not going to go around waving the flag of like, I'm a black woman. Not that I haven't done it. I have because it was an important part of my growing up, important part of my process was to study my identity. But as I've got older, I'm just like, I just am that now. Um, and it imbues my work. And it might just be a line that's in there. It might just be the context uh, through the lens through which I look through when I want to write about a particular subject, because I am looking at environmental issues right now, um, or have been for the last five years or so, five or six years, I've been looking at environmental climate issues, ecological issues and stuff that um, are related to our existence as a species on this planet. Um, so um, I might one day look through the lens of being a black woman and what that means. So, you know, sometimes it's really important that it's that I, I mention it and other days it's like, no, I'm just human today. I'm just, just want to just be me, <laughs> you know, no labels. I just want to do what I do. So diving in deeper, um, continuing from that point, how does your We've mentioned personal identity. How does your personality and characteristic traits influence your you as an artist? So going deeper into characteristics and traits, etc. As somebody who really enjoys studying astrology, so not just like looking at the star signs like Mystic Maker, like I go into astrology, I look at the planets and the movements, I look at the concept of the universal of a universe and us existing in a space in time and stuff like that. But as a Gemini, I'm very chatty, as you can tell. Um, I enjoy communication. I enjoy learning. I enjoy information just for the sake of having it in my noggin, you know. Um, uh, but it really influences my work in that I, I'm obsessed with researching. I just have to know everything about the thing that I'm studying. The, or the, if I've got a commission, I have to know all that, all that I can about it. And it will brew for about three, two, three, four weeks, depending on the length of time I've got for a brief, if it's a commission. Um, but that, that information or that theme or that subject matter will be brewing for a very long time before one day I'll say, right, I'm ready to write a poem now. And then the poem will come out. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more follow-up question from that. Um, you mentioned about being a perfectionist. Do you feel like that hinders you in any way? Because obviously, being a perfectionist, there's obviously many benefits to it, but does it hinder you? Yeah, because I think you can end up being your own worst critic. You know, I'm, I'm sensitive. <laughs> I'm sensitive. Um, and um, you can be your own worst enemy when you're, when you're a perfectionist. Um, so on that side, on a personal level, yes, it can hinder you. Um, I think perfectionism, nothing is perfect. I think the thing is what it is. Whatever it is you make, it, it is what it is. It's 
other people's judgment on the thing that you might, might be my concern, if it's not perfect because they'll think this and they'll think that. But as I said, like sometimes somebody might just be grateful that you put a plate of food in front of them. It doesn't matter if it's just, you know, soup and, fl and bread. Whereas you think, you know, it has to be the most perfect soup. It has to have the villager, you know, it has to be artisan bread or it has to be a whole meal. It's like, no, just give somebody a poem from the heart that's really simple, but it has heart in it rather than try and make it all complicated and convoluted with lots of clever tricks and rhymes. Not that I have an issue against that, because I, like I said, I like information and I love people who can be really clever with wordplay, but sometimes just simple lines from the heart, which might be four lines long, might be the food that somebody needs. How does your personal identity and heritage influence you as an artist? Yeah, I think for me, my identity influences me in the sense of, especially when you're trying to, I think, communicate things that are inside and bring them to the surface or I think of a lot of what we talk about kind of like an iceberg. So you have the top and the surface level or what one of my trainers said is bus stop conversations. <laughs> and then lower and deep down you have like the, the real true self. And for me, I think my personality and my identity are in the, the true self part. So it's a process of trying to bring that out to the surface. And when you do that, it's scary. So it's scary to talk about childhood. It's scary to reveal sometimes lack of connection that you might have with identity as we exist as you know children of of the diaspora. And I think for me, it's just about being authentic to what my experience is and not trying to you know wear a hat that isn't for me. And I think that that, that takes time. I think when you're trying to make your own way, it's about being authentic to yourself and just being communicating what, who you are to the right people and um, to anyone I guess that's willing to listen because you never know who needs to hear what you have to say so you have to keep on saying it um, and earlier talking about perfectionism what helps me actually is because you know poems never it's never the first draft and it's never really finished either but it really helps me to like to share my poems with people I trust so I can hear it back for myself and realize oh as I'm performing it, I can hear what's missing. So even the majority of poems I write and perform are, you know, almost complete 180s to, to how they started, but like how they finish is where I needed them to get to. Um, and there's a quote about, don't let perfect um, get in the way of good enough, because right. there's so many artists that are probably the, the best singers rappers, dancers, whatever it is in the world, but no one gets to know because they're waiting for it to become perfect. And in that time, everyone else is just releasing things that are good enough and that have heart and um, are able to be connected with in the world because they're, they're, they're out there. Um, so something I've had to learn to do is just like, yeah, don't be afraid of, of imperfection or it should be embraced. You think um, being able to embrace this imperfection has made it easier to deal with perhaps like criticisms people might have. There's a time for honesty. Like people talk about brutal honesty, and all honesty is brutal, but it's about when it lands. So if, if you're in a low mood for whatever reason it might be, and, and someone knows this and then decides to give you the honesty, that could impact you worse than when you know when you're in like a, a mood where you can deal with all those sorts of things. So so I've just done a show. I'm feeling really. Um, got lots of adrenaline and everything 
um, maybe then isn't the best time to say that, oh, you, 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 you fluffed that one line or oh, you did this differently and I liked it how you did it before. Um, maybe it's better for that to come a few days later when, when I'm ready to receive that rather than kind of like knocking me or anyone else down in their kind of moment to shine. So I think it's just the timing when it comes to, to honesty and criticism. Is there any specific technique that you use that helps you build that confidence when performing a poem in front of an audience? It's probably just in the practice beforehand, really. Um, and especially with that spoken word versus page poetry, um, like getting used to the, the flow. So something I do a lot is I'll have a, two to three flows in my poems. Um, where it just changes up, kind of like um, kind of like a song, you know, you know, you have your verse, your chorus, that sort of stuff. And I think that just for me, it's just practice beforehand. That it's very rare that something's going to come out while I perform it to to an audience um, that's new. It might mean it would obviously be new for them, but it shouldn't be new for me. I don't think. Um, obviously, things can change on the day, but yeah, it's all in the, the practice beforehand for me. Um, are there any specific role models that have inspired the way you write and perform? Um, yeah, I grew up reading Dane Smith. Well, I've currently, I love Dane Smith. Um, it's an American poet and I just, there's something about the way they perform that feels really heartfelt. Um, and I guess like I'm, as I'm 33, so I've grown up with a lot of poets like Caleb Femi, Bridget Minamore, Kay Tempest, um, just off the top of my head of like the people that I, I read or re read regularly in Raymond de Trobus. Um, so I think I gravitate towards poem, poets that I have a similar identity to and life experience or like Keo Chingongi talks about growing up in certain areas, right? And the way um, Keo and, and Caleb Femi just describe the ends essentially <laughs> in this in this way that humanizes it in a way that I think mainstream media doesn't. Has there ever been a moment where you've like become emotional on stage after performing a poem? It's not that I get emotional, I get surprised afterwards because I don't know if you have this as well, but I'll I can kind of get lost in time and forget for the past five minutes. And you walk off and you're like, did that just happen? And sometimes it can be a relief because you've been working on something for so long or been trying to like bring truth to, to a subject. And yeah, I think for me, I get surprised and a bit, I don't know if it's dissociative or, or what, but I can kind of, I kind of lose time. You get in the flow and then the words are just coming out and everything. And it's not until afterwards, or I might see a video and be like, oh, okay, that did happen. Because for me, I kind of just forget it's, it's happened when I've done other events and I've done talks, like I can, I can't, I know the time's passed, but I find it really hard to, to go back and remember being on stage and, and speaking and performing. So it's, it's less so, less so emotional and stuff. It's more just, I don't know if it's adrenaline and then my brain protecting myself or something, but um, yeah, I just get, yeah. It's memory loss, but you get it's memory loss as a result of like being in a flow, in yeah, and in the moment. If you are doing that, I think you'll find that the audience are doing that as well. I know that when a poem for me is authentic, is feels authentic to me, I do get lost in it. I get lost in the storytelling. 
And sometimes, you know, as I was saying before, when I study something and then I actually end up writing it, it just feels like the, the, the poem is channeling, is being channeled. Um, and then in the moment when I'm performing, like I will get surprised as well. Like, oh, did I write that line? Wow, that's a really, that's a really cool line. Like, uh, and that's not as like as a, from a big head perspective. It's just like this feels like what I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be on this stage, but I used to feel extremely nervous. And there's times when I've literally blacked out, like don't know what the next line is. And I've said, sorry, everybody, I've got to stop. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I've blacked out and then I gave myself a good talking to in the mirror one day and I said, you are never going to let nerves get the better of you like that again because it's not about you. It's about the poem. It's about the story. It's about the message. Um, and when I've gone to that place, like really gone in, I have cried on stage before um, because I was just moved the whole, it wasn't just the poem, it was the whole event and the energy of the audience. And I just happened to pick the right poem at the right moment and, and everybody was crying. So I was like, okay, this was meant to happen because maybe it was a really, um, the event might have been very, um, a moving one, you know? And so everybody's just in that mode of like, yeah, we really need to do something about this cause and just really feeling it. And I think I, when I do my workshops, I do advocate, I say, look, if you f make you, yourself cry, if you make yourself laugh, then, you know, go with that as a good gauge, because it, but from an authentic place, as long as it comes from an authentic place of laughter or like melancholy or whatever, <laughs> or hope, you know, then um, use that as a gauge. I think you have to trust, I think you have to trust yourself. Right, so these questions are targeted to you, Zena, in particular. So you have performed with huge names like Hugh Masekela and Linton Crazy Johnson. How did that happen? Um, so the Hugh Masekela, um, that was a honour and a blessing before he passed. Um, he is a South African trumpet player from the old school, like he old school South African jazz, like through the whole apartheid movement, he was there uh, playing jazz music. Um, I was honored to work with him. I've worked with a lot of South African, I've sang in the South African gospel choir. I worked with a South African jazz musician called Pops Muhammad. I've done a lot of music and poetry as well. So a lot of people know me as a singer, percussionist. I did do percussion for a little while. Um, played with a lot of different African instruments like the Mbirad um, Zavadzimu, it's a thumb piano. Mbirad um, Zavadzimu means spirit of the ancestors. Um, so I played that for a while. And I was invited by um, Serious Music. They run the London um, Jazz Festival. I was invited by uh, Serious Music and they are the creators and the hosts and the facilitators, the makers of the London Jazz Festival. And I was invited to support Hugh Masekela. Um, uh, it was a very huge deal. It actually was one of those moments where I sort of, sort of did, a, it was a curve. It was a uh, one of those life-changing moments doing that performance. Cause I was like, who is this woman who is performing in this Royal Festival Hall, looking up at all of these 2,000 people? And they came to see the support act. They didn't just come to see Hugh, they've come. I'm like, 
who am I? I had a, it was a real moment of just like, I need to just regroup. <laughs> so after I'd finished that gig, I went home and I did what women sometimes do is I cut my hair off um, because it's a change you can make immediately. And it made me look in the mirror and say, what is it you're doing? Who are you? Because that was a big gig. Um, and it really made me regroup around my craft and what I wanted to do as a career and as a profession. Um, so it was a life-changing honor and blessing to do that gig. Linton, I, I know through, um, just through the scene actually, just be performed on stages, um, festivals, performances and, and, and events just over the, the decades. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I've seen him around and some, we just end up on the same stage in the same green room, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing, yeah. So obviously you said you cut your hair. Um, what made you, what really pushed you to make such a, you know, decision? Well, black women's hair is politicized all the time. Um, and I had had dreadlocks for 20 years. And uh, I kind of went through a funky dread space where I sort of like just shaved the sides and had this thing going on at the top and I was just wearing these funky clothes and funky earrings, which I really enjoyed. It was an interesting time um, in my creation of my identity and my sort of the Zena Edwards poetry brand. Because, you know, as a poet, I am a poet. That's what I am. I'm a, I'm a writer. If I don't write, I don't feel well. So I have to write. But poetry happens to be something that I really gravitate towards to express things that I can't express through writing prose. Um, but uh, I'm also a product. I recognize that when it comes to the industry, I'm also a product. So you have to sort of have a brand and a, a look and a thing. And a, so I went through this kind of like, I'm really going to experiment and have these funky dreads. And, da, 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 da. and that was why that day, the music I was doing, the set that I had selected was, was coming from a really interesting place in, in me. Like it felt really authentic, but the look didn't. So I was just like, you know what, this has been fun. It's time to, to, to say, who are you? You want to do more of this writing, this kind of writing. You want to do more of this singing, which had a much more sort of spiritual slant to it, I found. I was kind of going into this sort of, sort of humanist, peaceful pacifism, pacifist sort of spiritual side, um, which I think really led me into looking at environmental issues and who we are as humans on the planet and stuff like that and connections to nature and, and I just thought this all has to go you know the, the clothes so I just became much more simple it's just like nice pair of jeans decent shirt t-shirt nice shoes nice hair simple makeup if I want to put it on but the hair it's just no it's too dramatic so I just went natural and had short hair like that and it was just really easy and it's culturally represented who I was as a woman, that this is my natural hair without, and that's just where I was at at the time, so. Nathaniel, as a co-founder of Swim Dem Crew, how do you use swimming to establish a safe environment and community? And in what ways can it be beneficial to the body physically and the mind mentally? Um, so at Swim Dem, I create a, a safe environment by, I think one is being myself, and I'm quite silly and and calm. So I think people get to see that and like put at ease once we, before we even start a session. Um, 
and yeah, so I think there's that. So as my personality comes through, I run it with a man called P. Um, and we kind of bounce off each other. So I think people see that we are friends. So if they're friends, it's like, oh, this is a, a place where friendship can happen and be made. Um, before we get in the water, we have an introduction round where I ask people what their name is, what brings them here today, and just to allay any fears that they might have. I also ask them when the last time they swam was. Um, and I again put them at ease and some people come and they haven't swum for 15 years and they're going to change that today. Um, again, putting them at ease of like, obviously I'm a qualified teacher and all these sorts of things and they'll have nothing that I've not seen before. Um, so I think those are the things like, it's about setting the space before we even get into the water and through that people again, I think they're encouraged to just have fun. That's what I want. I want people to enjoy being in the water. So I think for me, it's beneficial for the the body's the easy one because you're you're using your whole body without really thinking about it. Um, whereas in other sports, whether you're running or playing anything, you're very aware of the movement that's happening because you feel the footsteps or you feel the the punches or your arms. Whereas with swimming, it's you feel just kind of like you're you're just trying to go through something. Um, and then for the mind, it's it's a very separate environment to what well, I'd say pretty much anything else. That environment of the pool and, and water is is quite unique, I think. So I think with that, it it brings a clarity, and um, because you can only think about certain things while you swim. Um, on your point on how you felt more confident whilst you were younger, um, is that because when you get older? Um, death becomes more apparent and obviously the fear factor kicks in when you're younger you don't have that fear as much because um, you're maybe lost in the world in your environment yeah I think you're lost in your world you're sheltered a little bit when you're younger um, and for me I wasn't faced with with death until I was about 12 or 13 and again it was it was a grandparent so it was it was the death that's supposed to, or you're expected to experience. Um, and then in my mid twenties, I experienced sudden death from a friend and I was like, oh, that's, that's not planned. And that's not, you don't prepare for those things. So I think, yeah, as you get older, just where you are developmentally as a person, um, you become aware of your own morality more. Um, whereas when you're younger, it's about like testing boundaries, um, finding your place in the world. And it's probably quite self, for, for me anyway, I was, it was, I was interested in self and how I could help people. Um, but yeah, I think maybe where I'm at now, it's, I'm more concerned about doing good work and my legacy. Um, whereas when I was younger, that wasn't, I just wanted to have fun. <laughs> I still want to have fun now, but yeah, I'm just cautious, more cautious. So um, I believe this one is obviously targeted to Nathaniel. So. As social media continues to expand, it has created podcasts and the growth of Red Pill community and the manosphere. Do you think that young people can easily be indoctrinated into harmful mindsets and toxic masculinity? In short, yes. Um, there's lots of research about it now, but I think with the new applications and the short form content like on TikTok and Instagram Reels and, and Twitter videos and YouTube Shorts, um, I think when I talk to young people, I try and remind them that the goal of the apps is to keep you on there. So they're going to push whatever they think will keep you on there. And 
there's lots of different tactics that this like the manosphere um, creators and creatives use to, to keep people engaged. Um, but it's about being able to equip people with the right lenses so they can decipher what they're actually seeing and the purpose of it. And if they can understand what the real message of it is, um, like we're in a place now where we see the government's got their prevent um, arm, which is still with, um, I guess, you know, terrorism referrals and prevent was set up for a very di different reason to what it's being used as now, because most referrals for prevent are for, um, I guess, manosphere content and intel and um, mis misogyny. Um, so it's now being, it's, what am I trying to say? Basically, present was set up for one reason, and it's now trying to counteract the misogyny that we're seeing in society, but um, it's, it's not fit, it's never been fit for purpose. And um, I think schools and, and youth services are in a very, I guess, in a, between a rock and a hard place with like what to do, because these, these things we see are a reflection of society as a whole. It's not uh, work and sexual, um, like a sexual justice and, you know, these, the things we see at schools and with young people, the same things that happens at, with adults and it all comes from law and policy and, and attitudes from the society. So it's very easy for young people to get indoctrinated into it. And just, but it doesn't mean it's hard to pull them out. It just means that you have to be committed to, to getting them out of there. It was great having you guys here. Thank you for joining us. Um, we had a great time just talking to you as people, um, hearing about your experiences, what inspires you, and just social issues in general. Um, we wish you success for the future or any future endeavors you may go on. Um, this is Yasmin and Emma. Thank you guys for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.